Take your Bibles and turn with us this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, please. The book of Hebrews chapter number 10. Thank you. And thank you again for everybody that, that worked uh, to get us to where we are today. Again, visitors, thank you for being here with us. May God bless you and uh, meet your needs in the service. We trust that there be one here today knows not Christ, that perhaps this would be the day that you would come to him. No better time than now. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Would you stand with us, please? You've been seated for a while. And um, would you stand? We'll stand and honor the reading of, um, honor our text today by standing this text that we're taking. I'm interested in the Christmas story according to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged uh, should uh, have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Uh, above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Thank you for standing. I'm going to speak under three headings. I'm interested in the context of this passage of Scripture. I'm interested in the passage of Scripture that we've read itself. And then I'm interested in the Christmas story, or at least the truth of what Christ said about it as we know it today. I thought about if, if we could call today to witness um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and their writings, they could no doubt verbatim. Uh, just quote uh, what they have told us about the Christmas story. If you were to ask Mary to stand and testify today, she would tell you no doubt about 
um, the day when the angel appeared unto her and told her that she was to be with child of the Holy Ghost. And she would probably tell about the journey as she and Joseph would make their journey to Bethlehem for the taxing and census that was to take place. She no doubt would underline the fact that there was no room found for them in the inn they uh, tried to lodge in. So they, um, uh, they settled into a stable and there Christ was born. No doubt she would tell about that night how shepherds came and visited and adored uh, the Son of God. She lied there in that manger. Now angels poured into and filled the night sky as they sang their anthem unto the Lord. Um, you, could, you could ask others to come from history that could give witness and testimony. Joseph, no doubt, uh, could do the same. Here's what the Lord says about it, verses 5 through 9. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, the Bible says he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. He said, I come to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Now those are the words of our Lord. That also is a quote from Psalm number 40. When we think about Psalm number 40, a lot of times people will um, offer their testimony and quote from the first two or three verses which say, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth. And then he goes on to testify even a little farther. But in that psalm, there are messianic hints that are found as well. In that psalm, verses 6 through 8, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. It's a hint toward what our Lord would say. It's... Pre-written history is what it is. And here Christ has stated what he stated uh, in the text of Hebrews chapter number 10, verses 5 to 9. So there you have the Christmas story as we know it, according to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to consider with me, if you will, the context of this, uh, these verses that we've read. As a matter of fact, if you want a key verse, especially a key phrase to the book of Hebrews, turn back to chapter number 6. Verse number 1 will give you that. Hebrews 6 and verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He says, let us go on. Let's don't go back. There was a temptation to fall back on that old Judistic system and follow the old Leverite law. And to do what they were raised on. After all, the temple is still standing at this, this point, And they're experiencing a bit of persecution uh, even as uh, this book of Hebrews is written. The setting to the book, of course, the penman 
uh, we believe to be in Hebrew, writing to Hebrews. In other words, a converted Jew writing to converted Jews. And so this book is a, a book of striking transition. Here's what I'm talking about. There's much to overcome for these Jewish converts early on in the church. There's going to be heat, if you will. There'll be, there'll be things said. There'll be much persecution against them because they have embraced Christ. A lot of things to overcome in their lives as this book is written. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews is a transitional book in the New Testament. It helps them bridge from that old life and what they were raised in uh, and helps them get into the church and, and to follow Christ and to rest in Christ. Number one, they had to overcome tradition. Many are blinded by their traditions even today. As a matter of fact, if we'll all be honest, it's hard to overcome what we've been taught. It's hard to unlearn it. It's hard to get that out of your mind and be open to listening to what the truth of the Word of God perhaps has to say to us. Uh, they had to get over the temple. Again, the temple is still standing at this time. And what the temple, what was going on in the temple were daily sacrifices. And those that are offering the sacrifices, why, there's not a price to pay for them. They're going on about life like they've always gone on uh, about life. And what the book of Hebrews will help these Jewish converts to do is to overcome ritualism and overcome formalism. It'll help them get beyond that. They have to overcome as well their ties, their life in the community, even lives regarding family members. Every time I think about the book of Hebrews, I think about this truth. And of course, I think about the old revivalist, Hyman Appleman, the converted Jew. After Appleman was saved, after he repented and trusted Christ, in a moment of time, he immediately wanted his mother and his father and the rest of his family to be saved. He wanted to share a gospel witness with them. Uh, they rebuked him. They chided him uh, very sharply. As a matter of fact, they renounced him as their son. Uh, they, what they did was they bought a casket and they took some of his effects, some of his clothing and pictures and some of his personal items, and they buried it in that casket and they considered their son uh, to be a dead man as far as the family was concerned. It was not in these days that as a Hebrew individual was saved, it was not that they had to turn their back uh, on their families. Their families would forsake them. And they had to overcome that. There's much to overcome. They also had to overcome tempers. Tempers um, were at an height against them. People were not open to listen to the gospel of Christ. After all, by and large, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, even as they do today. Uh, they had to overcome as well the trend of Christianity. You see, Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish people were raised to despise Gentiles. They were lower than. They were less than. It was a generational sin that was propagated uh, from a mother and a father to their children, to their boys and their girls, and it kept repeating itself. And you see, the trend of the New Testament and the church is that there are no Jews, there are no Gentiles in the church, just members of one body. We're all members in particular, but there's only one body. Uh, there, we're all on equal footing uh, when it comes to the church of the living God, neither Jew nor Gentile. Again, this is a transitional book. Their Jewish traditions have to be overcome, and they must learn to worship Christ in spirit and in truth. They must learn to rest in him and rest in him alone when it comes to the finished work of Calvary. 
Hebrews is a book of striking transition. It also is a book of sure appraisal. The book of Hebrews evaluates the Christian life and also what Christ has done for us. Now, the book of Hebrews is much like a, in the New Testament, it is related to the books of Exodus and Leviticus in the Old Testament, much like people have married Daniel and Revelation out of the Old and the New, or maybe Proverbs and James out of the Old and the New, and such like. Uh, But the book of Hebrews also is a book of scriptural foundation. I won't ask you to turn there, but you'll find in Hebrews 8 and verse number 6 and Hebrews 13 and verse number 9, you'll find a word that is key to both of those verses and also is key to understanding why the book of Hebrews was written. It's uh, the word established. The word established means to be solidly grounded. It means to stand firm upon your feet. It means to be secure when... Everything around you is falling apart. When everything's coming down around you, uh, to be established means to have your feet uh, firmly planted and you still stand uh, where you need to stand. The book of Hebrews will force you to ask yourself the question, am I trusting the Word of God? Is the Word of God enough? Or am I trusting my own mindset? Am I trusting uh, maybe everyone else's ideas? Am I grounded in the Word of God? Things are about to be really shaken up for these Hebrew converts. As a matter of fact, not long after the penning of the book of Hebrews, Titus, the Roman emperor, will have, um, will destroy his soldiers, will ransack and destroy uh, the city of Jerusalem, and they'll tear down and destroy Herod's temple as well. Everything as they've known it will be upended. And then Titus and his soldiers will blame the Christians for burning the city of Jerusalem and destroying it. The book of Hebrews is a book also of strong anticipation. It's one of the beautiful things about our faith. We don't just live today what we know to live today, but we know that there's a brighter day that is coming. And the book of Hebrews from one page to the other keeps us moving forward, keeps us looking ahead, gives us a vision for a better day out under that God has prepared for his people. As a matter of fact, in the very outset of the book, we learn of Christ. In chapter 1 and verse number 4, who is the heir of all things? That's a future. That's a future mentality that is presented to us. Also, you'll find just a couple of other places. In chapter 2 and verse 5, the writer of Hebrews speaks of the world to come. In chapter number 9 and verse number 15, there's the promise of an eternal inheritance. I mean, it just keeps pointing us over the horizon, just across the way to a better day, to a grander day, when we shall be in the presence of the one who is altogether lovely, the one who has bled and died and rose again, so that we might be uh, forgiven of our sins and justified standing in Christ and standing in Christ alone. So it's a book of strong anticipation. Uh, there are some questions that come from this thought as far as my mind is concerned as well. You will remember the Apostle John wrote in John chapter number 1 in verse number Nine of his gospel account, writing of Christ, he wrote that that was the true light, speaking of Christ, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The first question a man is faced with, or a lady, or a young person is faced with, is what, uh, what will I do with Christ? What shall I do with Christ? Uh, the, the choice in that uh, question uh, will determine your eternal destiny. It will either be heaven or it will be hell. 
You say, preacher, I just don't believe in the heaven or hell. It doesn't change a, doesn't change one thing. I mean, it's in the book. It's always been the book. It's going to stay in the book. Amen. Uh, he said, uh, he said, Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away, shall not pass away. What shall a man do with Christ? That's, uh, that's the first confrontation of eternal matters that you've got to get, you've got to get that settled. And then after salvation, you also have to settle uh, the question, now which world am I going to live for? Am I going to live for this world or am I going to live for the world to come? There's a number of young people, Brother Lynn McCord come to me. During the fellowship song, he said, you know, we've really got a number of young people around this church. And you mothers and grandparents, you are to look at your babies this morning. I know some of them's 14, 15, 16 years old, but they're still your babies. And next time the devil wants to talk you out of being in your place at the house of God, you are to just look at little Junior or look at little Sis and ask yourself the question, now, is he worth it? Is she worth it? I think I'll get up and come again next Sunday, and I think I'll be back on Wednesday night. It is worth it, even when the devil would try to talk you out of your place of service to the Lord. The book of Hebrews is a book of supreme exaltation as well. Now, if you know anything about Hebrews, you know the key word to the book of Hebrews is the word better. Every time you turn around, Christ is better. He's better than the, he's better than the prophets. Chapter 1, the first few verses, he outspeaks them. He's better than the angels. The remainder of chapter number uh, 1, he outranks them. Uh, they were created. He is the uncreated uh, creator. As we said last Sunday, he's as old as his father, uh, eternal as far as time is concerned. And he's older than his mother. And uh, uh, fathom that if you can. Uh, but he is, uh, he is better. He's not only that, but in chapter 2 of Hebrews, he's better than man. He's outperformed us. Uh, some think that he was, he was made uh, uh, like unto us and and with the ability to sin, oh, friend, listen, he is God of very God and cannot deny himself. He's better than man. He's outperformed us. He's the sinless one. We all have the blight of sin upon us. He's better than Moses. He takes us where Moses could not take us. He's better than Aaron. His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, which has no genealogy. And he has no death certificate in, in the word of God. He offers a better rest. His covenant is a better covenant, all established in the book of Hebrews. He offers to us a better principle. It's not works. It's not our deeds. It's not our goodness because we have none to offer God. But his superior principle is that of faith. How about that? If a six-year-old gets into the family of God or if a 60-year-old gets into the family of God, they'll do it by faith. They'll do it by taking God at his word. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's better in his person. He's better in his performances. He's better in his offices as prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he brings God to man. As a priest, he brings us to God. And then as king, he's Lord over all. He's better in his sacrifice. Even in verse number 12 of our text, the Bible says, But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. There's no other sacrifice to pay. Jesus has settled the debt. He paid the note off. Our sin debt, he paid it when he went to Calvary. Those that were saved on the layaway plan in the Old Testament, they trusted the same Christ that we trust in this day. He's paid the debt off, thank God. If you die in your sins, that's your fault. That's your choosing. He has paid the debt. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He's better in his covenant. His covenant is not temporal, but his covenant is eternal life. He offers eternal life when someone comes to Christ. He's better again in this principle of faith. Christ is lofty. He's lofty in his person. He's lofty in his performances. He's lofty in his principles. He is preeminent. He is superior. He is our lofty Lord from heaven that robed himself in flesh and came to this world to die for our sins. Simon Peter would write to the same group that this book of Hebrews is written to. In his general epistle, they were people that were scattered. They were part of the diaspora. They had trusted Christ as Jewish people. They were run off their properties, out of their homes, their livelihoods. Uh, everything was ransacked and taken from them. They were, they were plundered and, and pillaged and, and treated like they were second-rate citizens back in these days. And Peter would write to that same crowd in his general epistle, and he would say in chapter 2 and verse 1 of 1 Peter, Unto you therefore which believe. He said, don't forget this. He said, he is precious. No matter what else is going on around you, he is still who he is. The context of this passage. You kind of understand where he's writing here. When he writes this 10th chapter, and the first major division of this chapter is the, is the verses that we've read. Secondly, let me say something about this text of Scripture before us. Verses 1 to 18 of Hebrews 10. And these verses, what they do is they underline the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood is superior uh, to that of the blood of bulls and goats and bullocks and, and birds and lambs. And his blood is the blood, perfect blood. He is the perfect sacrifice uh, that uh, died for us. In verses 1 to 6, you'll find the failure uh, that uh, the law, uh, the failure of the law to provide salvation. That's what uh, no doubt many thought. And as many read through the Old Testament, particularly Exodus and Leviticus and other books of the Old Testament, they think that somehow keeping of the law, offering the proper sacrifice, that somehow that's able to appease God, but not so. You'll look with me in verse number 1. The law has failed in the fact that it cannot perfect. Verse number 1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, that can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the cumbers thereunto perfect. In other words, the law has failed us. Not only has the law uh, exposed us for being sinners, but it's failed us. It can never deliver us. Only Christ can be our deliverer. This word perfect or perfect means to complete. The law can never perfect. It can never complete salvation for someone who is lost. Uh, the law, it cannot save. The law never has saved. The law never will save. The law's made us a bunch of trespassers and a bunch of rebels, a bunch of lawbreakers. That's what the law has done to us. The law condemns us, and yet Christ has set us free. The law pushes us away, and there's Christ sweetly drawing us unto his precious side. The law curses us, and Christ has blessed us and continues to bless us. The law makes demands upon us, yet in Christ we drop our hands to our side and we rest in him. We rest in his finished work. Under the law we're sentenced and sentenced to death and judgment. But in Christ we've been justified freely by his sweet grace. The law has failed in that it cannot perfect. The law has failed in that it cannot purge us from our sins. Verses 2, 3, and 4. And for then, he says, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Just in the mere fact that they had to do it year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, speaks volumes does it uh, to us, does it not? I mean, there's no canceling of it all. There's no stopping of it all. It's about like the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost had been celebrated and kept for some 1,500 years, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, a millennial and a half. And, and, but then the Bible says in Acts chapter number 2, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, won't be any more of that. Uh, there's a complete fulfillment of that in Acts chapter number 2. So it is with Christ. You see, those uh, every drop of blood of those bulls and goats and Old Testament sacrifices, every bit of it screamed that we can't deliver you, but there's one coming. There's one coming who shall deliver you one day in his great sacrifice, and we all rejoice in that. Notice with me 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. The law is failed in that it cannot please God. Verses 5 and 6. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. The satisfaction is found in Christ and in Christ alone. This other could never satisfy God. I rest my case in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 1 to 6, there's the failure of the law to provide salvation. In verses 5 to 18, There's the fulfilling of the law's demands by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He met every demand of the law. He met every demand of righteousness. He kept every law, every jot and every tittle. Uh, He did not entertain any bad thoughts or bad attitudes or or that of uh, living a life, an unrighteous life. Everything he did was purer than the driven snow. He is the sinless one. He answered all the demands of the law. You can't keep that and I can't keep that. I broke that from my mother's uh, cradle that she had for me. Had come out of the womb. The Bible teaches us speaking lies. You don't have to teach a child to speak a lie. You have to tell them not to. Don't teach them. You don't have to teach them to steal. They'll do that on their own. You don't have to teach them not to fight and be jealous. You'll have to teach them not to. They were born into Adam's fallen race. There's Christ's desire to please the Father in verses 5 to 9. Verses 5 through 8, notice God's dissatisfaction. Verses 5 to 8. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Look, I come, in the volume of the book it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, and neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. God's dissatisfaction. He's dissatisfied with every sacrifice, with every burnt offering, with all the varied and various offerings through those years. He was dissatisfied. He's waiting on that ultimate sacrifice that his only begotten son would pay for our sin. You'll notice with me in verse number 9 and verse number 7 and verse number 9. There's Christ's desire. Verse number 7, then said I, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And we'll deal with the phrase in between. In parentheses and just a little bit briefly. But he says it again in verse 9. Then said he, that is Christ, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. 
There's his desire. As a matter of fact, he says in verse number 9, he goes on to say, He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Uh, Christ's desire was to do that of the will of the Father. I believe it was last Sunday or the Sunday before, and looking at Christ and his person and his work, uh, how that, uh, I believe it is uh, over 180 times he mentions his Father. There are those who say, well, the great subject of the, of the Bible, uh, the great subject on the heart of Christ was the love of God. Well, it wasn't either. It was the Father. He said more about his heavenly Father than he did about anything else. I mean, he said more about the Father than he did about mercy. He said more about the Father than he did about heaven. He said more about his Father than he did about hell. He said more about the Father than he did about anything. And he spoke of many subjects. Hey, but he, his desire was to do the will of his Father. Now, he mentions the first. That's a reference to what's been long foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament uh, in the law and in the sacrifices. And then he mentions the second. Uh, that is a reference to uh, this that's been foreshadowed and Christ fulfilling every Old Testament prophecy, every Old Testament sacrifice, every drop of blood that was shed. And what the first did was it left us lacking. But what the second does in Christ it brings forgiveness and right standing before God. There is Christ's desire to please the Father. There is Christ's sacrifice. It has settled sin's debt, and it's done so permanently. You'll find that in the remaining verses of our text, verses 10 to 18. Notice with me verse number 10. In verse number 10, you'll find Christ's sacrifice has sanctified us forever. Verse number 10 says, By the which, by the which will we are sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I am his and he is mine. And it's that way forever. That's all been settled long ago down on my knees. Long ago. It wasn't really that I settled it all. He settled it all. And thank God his sacrifice has sanctified us forever. By the law I was forbidden to approach Mount Sinai. But because of Calvary I've been beseeched. I've been beckoned. To draw nigh unto God. I was, uh, I was in the bondage of sin. And now because of his blood, I now go free. And I praise his name for that this morning. As a matter of fact, let me just stop and say glory to God. Uh, that he would take note of a, of a wretched sinner such as I. Uh, that no matter what else was going around uh, the globe and all of humanity's population, there was a time he dealt with my soul. He dealt with my heart and brought me under conviction. And when I bowed before him, I was set free from that bondage of sin. I'm like, oh, Vance Abner, the night I was saved, I didn't know anything. I didn't even suspect anything. But there's something I could have. I don't know how I would have expressed it, but I could have told you. I didn't, come, I didn't come away from there with the same burden I walked in with. Matter of fact, I'd wrestled with that for some time. Christ's sacrifice has sanctified us forever. Verses 11 and 12, Christ's sacrifice for us. It's just as sure as his own priesthood. Verses 11 and 12. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, I like that, that he sat down, right? That, that word, that, that phrase, that he sat down, that gives us at least two things, maybe more than that, of course, but it lets us know that redemption is complete. He sat down, not because he was tired and weary and he'd been on a long journey, but he sat down because it's finished. As a matter of fact, when he cried from the cross of Calvary, it is finished. As one old boy said, he didn't say, I'm finished. 
He said, it's finished. He said, the sin debt, had the wrath of God, the judgment of God has been exercised against the sin of the world in my precious body. I've shed my sinless blood. It is finished. I say hallelujah. That will make a Lutheran want to shout. And then number two, his right to rule is acknowledged in the fact that he sat down. Look at verse 13. The Bible says, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now Christ has already conquered sin and death and hell and the devil and the grave. He's conquered it all. And right now he's just waiting. And I'll tell you when the time's right, he's going to put his head, he's going to put his foot on the head of, of his enemies. They'll be his footstool. It's what the Word of God has to say. It's just a matter of time, uh, dear child of God. Thank God we're serving the Lord of glory today. Now, verses 14 to 18, Christ's cross has affected our lives powerfully. 14 to 18, verse number 14. You'll notice with me in verse number 14, Christ's cross uh, sanctifies our standing. Again, it is forever. It's another emphasis along that line. Verse 14. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I'm thinking about right now what Tom Gillum says. He says when, when Christ sat down, we sat down with him because we are in Christ. And the Bible says you've heard people pray like this. You've heard people pray. Now, Lord, help us be seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in today's service. If you're saved by the grace of God, you don't have to pray that. You're already seated. Positionally, you're already there. Here's what old Tom Gillum says. He says, when the, he said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to walk up to myself and, and ask me to get up so I can sit down. <laughs> That's pretty good. I wish I'd have thought of that. I'm there. Old brother Billy Kelly, old brother, brother Billy, he used to say that he is so saved. That he could swing out over hell on a rotten corn stalk, singing Amazing Grace, and wouldn't have to worry about a hair on his head being singed. We're already there, Jimmy Franklin. That's hard for us to comprehend, child of God, but it's a truth. We, we believe it. We bow to it. It's taught in the Word of God. Positionally, I am in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse number 15 and 16, Christ's cross assures us the witness of the Holy Spirit to us. Verse 15, and verse number 16 says this, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. But after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Christ's cross also affects our lives from the inside out. Do you notice what he said he'd do to the hearts of those who know his son? He'll write his laws on our hearts. And he'll write them in the mind. David Brainerd, we all love Brother Ken Trivet around here. And he's sharing what they're doing up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And they're in their 11th year. He went there by the time I come here. And I've been doing mission work here ever since. Say amen right there. I'm kidding. He's a great missionary. He didn't go up there and try to make the Pine Ridge Church that they have established there a southern church. He wasn't dealing with southern folk. He's dealing with people in the most impoverished county in the United States of America. He went up there trying to reach a group of people that his own people has sold out. And the American government has turned their back on them too. He met them right where they were. He gave time 
for the word of God and the Holy Spirit to do a work in their hearts and their lives. And as they would be brought under conviction, different ones at different times, he would take the word of God and gently lead them to Christ. And he's become their pastor in in every bit of that. David Brainerd is in history as the greatest missionary to the Native American people. You know what David Brainerd wrote in his journal about the people he had led to Christ? His approach was the same. He met them where they were. He didn't try to make them into something they are not. He met them where they were. But he made the statement, wrote in his journal. He said, I've never had to tell one Native American once they're saved. I've never had to tell them how to live. Now, why would that be? What's right there in that verse? When they're saved, just like when you're saved, you ought to write it in your heart. You may get away from God, but you won't get far away from him. He'll deal with you. He has a way of chastening him and working and drawing us back into himself. And so much more could be said about that. Verses 17 and 18, Christ's cross has put away our sins forever. 17 and 18, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. We're pardoned forever, child of God. Our sins are gone. I mean, they're gone. Our sins are gone. It's forever settled. There once was a time, if you'll let me illustrate it like this, that on the chalkboard, some of us grew up not with whiteboards, but with chalkboards. Matter of fact, when we went home, our telephones was hung on the side of the wall. Do you believe that? We fought with our siblings over the use of it. But once our sins were listed on the blackboard, And when we came to Christ, he took the eraser and walked over and erased the board. I'm like a newborn babe. No past. The whiteboard, same illustration. He's done that for us, child of God. It's not that he doesn't have a mind to remember. He has chosen not to remember and charge my iniquities to my account. I got an hour and a half left. Y'all game? Give me about seven, eight minutes and I'm done. The context of this passage of Scripture, the uh, the text of Scripture before us, these verses, we've just gone through them. But the truth of what Christ said regarding the Christmas story as we know it, very briefly, verse number 5. Notice the incarnation. That's what he's speaking about in verse number 5. The incarnation of the Son of God is stated. Verse number 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not but... A body hast thou prepared for me. This is the Christmas story. That he came into this world robed in flesh. Made like unto us but without sin. Willing to die for the likes of us. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul would write. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. God incarnate, God in the flesh, the God-man on a mission. John would write in John 1, verse number 14, And the, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The, un, the incarnation of the Son of God is stated in Christ's words recorded. Verses 6 to 9, the crucifixion of the Son of God is considered. Listen to the verses. 
it's right there. In burnt offerings and sacrifices. For sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hadst uh, pleasure uh, therein uh, were, uh, which are offered uh, by the law. Verse number 9 says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, who taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. The crucifixion of the Son of God is considered in the Christmas story as Christ presented it. thought about several things along this line. Luke 23, verse 33 says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. I think I said this Wednesday night. He wasn't crucified on a hill far away. He was crucified on the side of the street. Just off of the ground on the cross. You could almost walk by and look him in the eye. The Romans did that. The Roman government, they did that to intimidate a violator. When they'd crucify somebody. It's crucified. That's not all of his suffering. It's a message I used to preach in meetings quite often. He suffered mental anguish. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. There are scholars that believe that while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and his pressure upon him became such, the grief, the load upon him was such that his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. Feel like he may have entered into possibly the lowest state of depression a man, a human, has ever entered into. What's he praying over? Not my will be done. He's not looking to escape it. He's not looking for an easier way. That's not what the prayer was about. It's not the suffering that he dreaded, but the sin and the separation. Think with me. The Son of God, the righteous branch, the Holy One of God, God's only begotten. Has it? has experienced intimate communion with the Father and with the Spirit for all eternity. And now because of our sin for a span of time, as God judges our sin in his body, in Christ's body, he turned his back on him. You remember what he cried from the cross of Calvary? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why? Hast thou forsaken me? Can you imagine the loneliness in his voice? He did that for you, you know. He did that for me. Somebody used to sing the song when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Thank God for what he's done. He suffered physical agony. Ira Sankey, the song leader for Moody, D.L. Moody, the evangelist D.L. Moody, used to sing the song. About every gathering, but none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that was lost. When he suffered spiritual abandonment there upon the cross of Calvary, hanging between two worlds, now you rejoice today, child of God. You may go through mental anguish yourself, and you may suffer physical pain if you live long enough. That's an absolute. But for those of us who are saved, we'll never be spiritually abandoned. He suffered our hell upon the cross of Calvary. And we rejoice. We rejoice in Christ. The inspiration of the scriptures. 
I got to show you this, and I'll bring it to a close. Look at verse number seven. The inspiration of the Holy Scriptures are recorded in the text. Do you see what he said? He said in verse number seven, do you see that? Then said I, lo, I come. Here's how the sentence would read. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. But he's put this in there. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. He said it's, it's right there. It's been there. The whole, he said it's in the book. Let me touch on something that we touched on in the beginning of the message. We think the book is about the love of God or the book is about the mercy of God. And it's in there, friend. But the book is about Jesus Christ. You read the church epistles. You won't go a good verse, verse and a half or two verses. You'll find Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ, the Lord Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord. The Pauline epistles are saturated with Jesus. You can't make too much of him. A lot of people want to make lobbyists out of us, organizing, attempting to influence our legislators. They're all crooked. If you can to them, I, get them to show up, I'll say it in them here. Every one of them's crooked. Every one of them have sold us out. I signed petitions by the American Family Association online. I'm sure you do too. I've made phone calls and left voicemails, and I'm sure you do the same. If you're not plugged into them, do that. That's not why the church is here. The church, a lot of times people want to make a bunch of activists. Matter of fact, some think that that's what a preacher ought to be, is an activist. Campaigning to bring about change politically and socially. Look, we're trying to preserve this thing, and God, in a very soon day to come, he's going to set a match to every bit of it, burn it all up. This thing's getting worse. It ain't getting any better. We're to be salt and we're to be light while we remain. That's what we're to be. Vote right. Live right. Use your influence, but be reminded when you come to the church of the living God, we have a purpose stated in Ephesians 4. We're to be preaching and teaching the word of God. As good as the singing's been, it's been good today. I'm telling you, if we don't do anything else, we're to open the word of God and we're to preach the word of God. That God's people be edified and lost people hear the gospel that they might be saved. Some want to make philanthropists out of us. Make every effort to promote human welfare. Let me tell you what we're to be. We're not even to be apologists. A lot of preachers get caught up in that. That's dissecting and arguing the finer points of, of doctrine. But we're to be biblicists. You know what they said in Nehemiah chapter 8? Rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. You know what they said? They said, hey, Nehemiah, bring the book. Tell Ezra to get his copy of the Bible. Bring the book. And when he stood when he stood up above all the people and he opened the book and began reading, you know what the people did? They stood up, sometimes a half a day at a time. Can you imagine them old heads ain't heard the word of God in so long? Can you imagine? Can you imagine an old man and old woman look at one another and him say to her, Mama, I never thought we'd ever see the day again. And here we are. Bring the book. If you'll say amen, I'll quit. A lot of things. The inclination of God, the Son, toward God the Father, seen in 7 and 8. I don't have time to preach it. The remission of our sins is to be celebrated, verses 17 and 18. I came across uh, several um, stories that I, I thought I might could use as an illustration to close this message. 
Uh, one that I chose was a teenage boy who, whose mother was away on a visit. He, he found himself by himself in the home with time on his hands. They had their own library, small library as, as a family. His mother being um, the reader in the family, he knew that she had Christian books, literature in the library. And he, he thought, well, I'm going to read some of the sermons from, from one of the sermon books. And, and he felt that he would learn some interesting stories. He, he'd been in church with his, with his family all of his life. While, while reading his book that he chose from the shelf, he came across the phrase, the finished work of Christ. It struck him. It weighed heavy on him. He considered that phrase, the finished work of Christ. He would later write and was used of God in his own right. But he said in those moments, he said he asked the question, why does the author use this expression? Why not say the atoning work of Christ or the propitiatory work of Christ? He knew those biblical terms, but he never heard that phrase. He knew, he knew those biblical terms, but he, but he didn't know the Savior. But that gripped his heart. He thought about Christ hanging on the cross of Calvary. When he cried before giving up the ghost, it is finished. The finished work of Christ. He wondered, where do I go from here? He slid down out of his chair upon his knees. He went to Christ in prayer and asked forgiveness. Asked the Lord to forgive him, to save him. He was saved. That's the testimony of J. Hudson Taylor, who was the founder of the China Inland Mission, one of the greatest missionaries to go down in church history. What are you going to do with Christ? Whoever you are today, you're here today, today lost. We're celebrating Christmas. But in celebrating that, we're to be reminded we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only one who could take up our case did take up our case. He died for our sins. Do you know him? Is it settled? Have you rest your soul in the care of the darling son of God? Or are you here today and the master calls for you? May God help us in these days to be reminded of the Christmas story. And if you want to read it again, Hebrews 10, 5 to 9, it's Christ's words. And he explains the Christmas story as we know it in this passage of Scripture. Would you stand with us, please?